First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 21? That's the second to the last chapter in the Bible. So just uh, if you open your Bible, go to the maps and then just turn to the left a couple of pages and you'll find it there. And uh, of course, the Bible does speak about two eternal destinies for all people, two places that we can go to the moment that our life in this world is over. I know that our fathers here today are thankful that we discussed the topic of hell last Sunday, so we don't have to spend Father's Day on that topic, but rather today we get to think about a far more pleasant topic. Today we get to think about the beauty and the glory and the joy of heaven. Not surprisingly, the place where we read the most about heaven is in the final two chapters of the Bible. Here in Revelation 21 and 22, at the very end of God's Word, He tells us more than anywhere else in His Word about this place that He is preparing for us to live with Him forever. We're going to read almost all of these two chapters before we are through uh, today. We're going to start by reading Revelation 21. And the first few verses of Revelation 22. It's a a lengthy passage, I know. But let's never forget, church, that when we are reading God's word, uh, we are hearing the most important words in the message. Uh, It is only these words uh, that are perfect. It is only these words that are God's words to us. And so let's read it together. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven... And a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and also there was no more sea. And then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part, and the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and the names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. 
And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like a clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, and each individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gate shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their forehead. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever. And ever. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for this amazing picture, this place that you are even now preparing for those who love you. Father, we pray that you would help us by your word to understand more of this place, that we might live here in this life the way that you would have us to live. Father, I pray for anyone here, anyone in this room right now whose name is not yet written in the Lamb's book of life, who has not yet trusted in your Son Jesus as their Savior, who is not at this moment on a path that is headed for heaven. I pray that even now you would speak to them through your word, that they might come to know you. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the Bible commands us as Christians to think about heaven. Look at what Paul wrote in his letter to the Colossians. He said, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. We're told in this verse to set our minds to think about things that are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. And where is that? That is heaven. 
We're commanded here to think about heaven, to fix our minds there, and to not be consumed with the things that are going on around us on the earth. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that we are to ignore the things that are going on around us. Uh, We don't want to be like those uh, of whom it was said they are so heavenly-minded as to be of no earthly good. We don't want to be like that. But when we read here in Colossians, is that in order for us to live the way that God wants us to live in this life, we need to be thinking about the next need to be thinking about heaven where Christ is. But the problem with that, the problem with being commanded to think about heaven is that for most of us, unless we have studied what the Bible says about heaven, then we know very little of what heaven is going to be like. And so it's hard to think about a place if we don't know much about it. And there's so many false ideas about heaven that are just circulating in our culture and, and even in the church, ideas that we pick up from different places. I, I think some people's idea of heaven is that, uh, you know, we're going to be floating on a cloud uh, next to a chubby cherub uh, strumming on a harp for all of eternity. Uh, and that's the idea of heaven for some people. Uh, the, the concept of heaven is like a big family reunion. And if that is the image of heaven that you have in your mind, then maybe you picture heaven as a giant RV park uh, where you'll be sitting on a picnic bench eating watermelon with your strange uncle Leroy who never knows when a handshake is over. And as you think about that, uh, it's not really all that exciting to you. Uh, There are some worship leaders who right after they get done leading a, a song, and they will say something like this. Well, you know, that's what we're going to be doing for all eternity. And if you don't particularly enjoy singing very much, the thought of an endless choir practice does not sound like heaven to you. And so it's important that we know what the Bible says heaven will be like and not what we think heaven will be like or what our culture says heaven will be like. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to spend our time digging into what God's Word really says about heaven, because only then can we set our minds on the things above what heaven will really be like. Before we dive into these two chapters and talk about heaven today, it's important that we know kind of where we are in the sequence of events that the Bible talks about. So here's the question, where are we? In Revelation 21 and 22. Now, first off, when we read this chapter, it's important to know that we're not in the current heaven. What, what theologians call the intermediate state. Let me explain what I mean by that. When, when a believer dies right now, the Bible tells us that their body goes into the ground. And their spirit goes to be with the Lord. The, the Bible puts it like this. We are confident, yes, well-pleased to be absent from the body, and to be present with the Lord. So what that verse says is that when we die, we are absent from the body. Our body goes into the ground, but we are present with the Lord because our spirit at the moment of death goes to be with the Lord in the present heaven. This past week, uh, we had a memorial service for a godly man named Winston DeBoard. Uh, Winston joined our church on May 1st, 1950.
five. 63 years ago. He was one of the longest uh, duration of members uh, as a part of our church family. And such a wonderful uh, man of God, such a gentle and godly man of God. And, and even while we will miss Winston, we can rejoice today because of the doctrine that we're talking about today, because of the doctrine of heaven. Because we know that at the moment of Winston's death, his spirit went to be with the Lord, that he is in the presence of his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he believed in. And yet this is the point that we need to hear. Winston, while he is in heaven, while he is in the presence of God, he is not in the heaven that Revelation 21 and 22 is talking about. The current heaven is a wonderful place because, again, we're in the presence of God. But when you look at the whole of what the Bible is teaching us, the current heaven is more or less a, a holding area or a waiting room. You know, when you go uh, to see the doctor, where, where do they put you? Right? They put you in a big waiting room. And a lot of times you have to wait in that waiting room for a long, long time. And then finally they come out and they call your name. For me, it's Mr. Wilson. Right? It's always Dennis the Menace that, that calls me. Uh, right? But they call me and I come back. Now, when, when they call your name, when they call your name, do you actually get to go to see the doctor at that point? No, you do not. You go from a big waiting room to a smaller waiting room. Sometimes you might even go to a third waiting room before finally the doctor comes in to see you. Now, heaven is a little bit like that. Now, I want to be clear. You see the doctor right away. At the moment of our death, we go to be with Jesus right away. We see the doctor right away. But we are waiting in the sense that we're waiting still for the fullness of heaven as the Bible describes it and explains it to us. And one of the reasons for that is, again, right now, when we die, our body goes in the ground, our spirit goes to be with the Lord. That means that right now in the present heaven, believers who are there are disembodied spirits. And, and I think some believers think that that's how we'll be for all eternity, that we'll just kind of be floating around without a body as disembodied spirits forever. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. In fact, when you look at the grand scheme of eternity, what the Bible teaches is that this little window where we will be with God in heaven without a body is actually a very short duration of time. Uh, we have a body right now, of course, and one day at the return of Christ, the Bible teaches us that we will receive a new, glorified, resurrected body. And once again, for all eternity in this new heaven, in this new earth that Revelation 21 is talking about, we will live once again as embodied spirits. We will have a body and soul to worship God with. For all eternity. So, again, this little period of time right now in the present heaven where it's just our spirit that is with God is actually kind of a strange and short duration period in the grand scope of what God is doing. So, even in heaven right now, there is still eschatology. They are still waiting for the last things. They are still waiting for this better heaven, this new heaven, and this new earth. That God has promised to give us. So the heaven of Revelation 21 is not the present heaven. It's better than that. Also, the heaven where we will live with our glorified bodies, the, the, the heaven of, of Revelation uh, 21, also is not the millennial kingdom uh, that is spoken about in Revelation chapter 20. 
I don't want to get too bogged down in the weeds here, but I believe, as many theologians do, that we will live one day with Jesus in what we call the millennial kingdom. Revelation 20 talks about that. It's a thousand-year period where we will reign on the earth with Jesus uh, in, in the millennial kingdom. Satan will be locked away during that time until the very end when there will be one final battle against Satan. And after that battle is completed, Satan will be defeated once and for all and thrown into the lake of fire. Anyone looking forward to seeing that? The Bible describes the millennial kingdom as a kind of in-between place between the earth as it now is and the new heaven and the new earth as it will one day be. But listen, by the time we get to Revelation 21, all of that is over. The, The tribulation period is over. The present heaven is not where we will be. The millennial kingdom has already come and gone. By the time we get to Revelation 21 and 22, we are in what theologians call the eternal state, the new heaven and the new earth. And again, it's important that we know what the Bible says about this eternal state because this period of time is, after all, eternal, Right? It's not just a hundred years. It's not just a thousand years. Well, what does the old uh, song say? Uh, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. A- after a billion years, we'll just be getting started with the eternal life that God has for us in this new heaven and this new earth. And so with that background in mind, what does the Bible say about this eternal heaven? Today we're going to do more or less a a quick overview of Revelation 21 and 22. And then next time we're going to come back to this text again. And we're going to dig in a little deeper about a few of these areas and talk about them more. But today I want to very quickly share with you ten truths about heaven. Ten truths about heaven. Here's the first one, and this may be a little different than the way that you've thought about heaven up until now. Here's the first truth. In the end, we don't go up to heaven, that heaven comes down to earth. Maybe you say, well, where do you see that? Well, look look at verse 1 of chapter 21. John writes, now I saw a new heaven. And a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and also there was no more sea. So there's a new heaven, and there's a new earth. But look what he says next in verse 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The new Jerusalem is what is described in the remainder of this chapter. It's the capital city of heaven. It's the place where God's people will dwell. But this verse says that John saw this new Jerusalem, this heavenly city, coming down out of heaven to the earth. First of all, that means that God has already made this new Jerusalem. This is the place that Jesus said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. This is the place that he is preparing for us. It's already made, and one day it's going to come down from heaven to earth. And so don't miss that. What that means is during the eternal state, the place where we will live is on a new earth. 
But this is a new earth that heaven has come down and joined. The, the new creation is a joining together of heaven and earth into one. And so when we sing a song called, I'll Fly Away, it's fine to sing that because one day, unless Jesus returns first, well, even if he does, we're going to fly away. But we also need to remember that biblically speaking, one day we're also going to fly back down. Because one day, heaven and earth will be joined together. One day, we'll live forever on a new earth in a new city called the New Jerusalem. It will literally be heaven on earth. And next time, we're going to dive in more to this idea and talk about what this life on this new earth will be like. That, that's the first truth. And in the end, we don't go up to heaven. Heaven comes down to earth. Here's the second truth. The best part of heaven is that God will be with us, and we will see his face. The best part of heaven. Look at verse 3. He says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. This loud voice that John hears is trying to get his attention. He says, Behold. He says, Look, John, don't, don't miss this. The tabernacle of God is with Men, remember last week we talked about what makes hell hell is the absence of the presence of God. What makes heaven heaven is the presence of God there in a special way. In the Old Testament, the tent of worship was called the tabernacle. It represented God's presence among his people. When Jesus came to earth in John chapter 1, this same John who wrote the Gospel of John said in verse 14 that Jesus took on flesh and he tabernacled among us. He came to live, to dwell among us. But when Jesus' earthly life and ministry was done, he ascended back to the Father. But what we're reading about here is that there will be a day in the new heaven and the new earth when God will dwell with his people forever and ever. Notice in verse 3, it says three times that God will be with us. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them. Three times where this is being emphasized, this truth, that God will be with us. Emmanuel, one of the names of Christ, God with us. And one day, he will be in a way that right now we cannot imagine. And not only do we get to be with him, but we get to see his face. Look over at Revelation 22 and verse 4. I don't think that there is a sweeter, more beautiful phrase anywhere in these two chapters than at the beginning of Revelation 22, verse 4. They shall see his face. Yesterday I was uh, driving with my four-year-old son, uh, Titus, and uh, we pulled into a parking lot, and I had sunglasses on as I was driving. And when we pulled in the parking lot and I parked uh, my car, uh, Titus from the back seat said, Dad, can you take off your sunglasses? I thought it was an odd request. I never heard him ask that before. But I took off my sunglasses. I turned around, and he kind of smiled at me. And I said, uh, Son, were you not sure that it was me? <laughs> and he said, uh, Dad, I knew it was you, but I just wanted to see your eyes. We know that God is our Father, and we know that He is with us, but every believer 
longs to see his face, to look into the eyes of our Savior. And one day soon, church, we will. And we will realize that that day when we look into the face of our Savior, that everything in this world that uh, was good, everything in this world that we ever saw that was beautiful, everything in this world that we ever saw that was true and holy and right and kind, that it was all just a glimpse of the perfection that we will see when we look in the eyes of Christ. This is the best part of heaven, that we get to be with God and we get to see his Here's the third truth, and we cannot miss this one. In heaven, the curse will be lifted, and all things will be made new. Now, we don't have time to go back to Genesis 3 and to study that chapter this morning, but when Adam and Eve first sinned, the Bible says that a curse fell on the world. It was a curse not only on the man and on the woman and on their descendants, it was a curse also on the land itself, that all of the created order lies under a curse because of our sin. Romans 8 says that even the creation itself is in bondage right now and is crying out to be redeemed, that everything is broken because of our sin and because of this curse. But as it says in Revelation 22, the curse... Uh, will be no more. Revelation 22, verse 3. Uh, This curse will be no more because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says he conquered sin, he conquered Satan, and he conquered death when he rose up from the grave. And one day when we are in this new creation, this new heaven and this new earth, sin will not be present there at all. Sin won't be present in our life because the Bible says that when we see him, we'll be like him. That we'll be glorified. We won't be sinning anymore. There will be no sin in heaven at all. At the end of Revelation 20, it says that our two biggest enemies, Satan and death itself, will be destroyed and thrown into the lake of fire. Well, what does that mean? It means that the curse of sin and death that is on the world now will be totally and completely gone in the new heaven and the new earth. And that's why Revelation 22.4 says this. Look at this with me. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So because this curse is gone, because this curse will be lifted, everything that is wrong with the world now will be undone and will be gone. This verse says there will be no more crying. And it says it much more intimately than that. It says that God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Well, why would there be no more crying? Because there will be no more reason for crying. Everything that causes tears now will be gone. It says that there will be no more death. Church, think about what that means. There will be no more cancer. There will be no more heart attacks. There will be no more strokes. There will be no more funerals. There will be no more cemeteries. There will be no more separation, right? It will always be hello. It will never be goodbye. There will be no more death. And also there will be no more pain. No more emotional pain. No more relational pain, no more physical pain, no more pain of any kind. We'll be 100% pain-free, and it will all be possible because of Jesus. Look at verse 5. He who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. 
If you've seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, my favorite scene in that movie is when Jesus is carrying his cross and he's walking down that road that leads up the hill to Calvary and he stumbles under the weight of the cross. And in that movie, uh, his mother, Mary, comes over to his side and kneels down beside Jesus. And Jesus looks into the eyes of his mother and says, See, mother, I am making all things new. Now, whether Jesus said that to his mom on that occasion or not, he says that to all of us right here. I am making all things new. It is because of what Jesus did that this newness will come. That newness, by the way, begins in our hearts the moment we believe in Jesus. Scripture says if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone. And the new has come. But one day, that newness that has started in our hearts will extend to all of the universe. He will make all things new. Here's another truth about heaven that we need to take to heart. As wonderful as this heaven is that we are talking about, not everybody will be in heaven. Only those who have overcome by the blood of the Lamb. I know if you judged by what you hear at funerals, you would think that everybody goes to heaven. But that is clearly not what the Bible teaches. We saw last week in Matthew 7, Jesus said there is a broad road that leads to destruction and many people go that way. There is a narrow road that leads to life and only a few people find it. And you see that same truth running throughout these two chapters as well. This this contrast between those who will be in heaven and those who will not be. Look at Revelation 21, 7 and 8. He says, he who overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. Verse 8, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Look down at verse 27. He says, but there shall by no means enter it, enter this city, anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Look over at chapter 22, verse 14 and 15. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs, not speaking of literal dogs there, but of those of questionable moral character and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. In my version in verse 14 where it reads, blessed are those who do his commandments, the better Greek manuscripts there read this way, blessed are those who have washed their robes. And that is, in fact, how we are saved, isn't it? Because we have washed our robes in the blood of Jesus. The the truth is, none of us will be in heaven because we were good enough to be there. In fact, the Bible emphatically teaches us that none of us are good enough to be there. If we were good enough to be there, then Jesus would have never had to die on the cross. The reason why Jesus died and suffered and was buried is because we're not good enough to go to heaven on our own. We have to have our robes washed in the blood of Christ to be cleansed and to be forgiven. That's the only reason why we're called an overcomer in Revelation 21.7. We're not an overcomer because we've somehow by our own strength and tenacity overcome. We're an overcomer because of the grace of God, because we believe in Jesus. 
John says the same thing in his little letter called 1 John. Look at these words. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our what? Faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? If we believe in Jesus, then we're an overcomer and we will be with him in heaven. And that is the case even if some of the sins that are listed in these verses have at one point been a part of our lives. 1 Corinthians 6 lists a very similar listing of sins and then says this, And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified by the blood of Christ. But if we've never turned from our sins, if we've never put our faith in Jesus, then these verses teach us that our lifestyle is going to reveal that. Our lifestyle is going to demonstrate that our names have never been written down in the book of life. And friend, I need to share this with you because I love you and I want to share with you the truth. If your name has never been written down in the Lamb's book of life, then you will die in your sins and you will be outside of this new heaven and this new earth that we are talking about today. And what a tragedy that would be to hear all of this about this place called heaven that God is preparing for us and yet to come to the end of your life and to not be there when you die. And that's why in a few minutes, I want to give you the invitation if you've never trusted in Christ before as your Lord, as your Savior, to take that step of faith today and to trust in Him. Here's truth number five. We have to go fast. Heaven will be a place of incredible beauty and glory. When you read the description in Revelation 21 in verse 9 down to verse 21, you almost get the idea that John was struggling to, to find the language to be able to describe this vision that God was giving to him. It says that God took him in the spirit to a mountain where he was able to see, again, this heavenly city, the new Jerusalem coming down. And it's almost here that he was almost given a close-up view of some of the aspects of this city. In verse 11, he says, This city has the glory of God. It was like a jasper stone. And not like our modern-day opaque jasper, but, but rather like a perfectly clear diamond. And the glory of God shining through that diamond like a prism all over this holy city. If this is to be taken literally, as I believe that it is, the size of this city is, is immense. It's described in verses 16 and 17 as a perfect cube in shape, about 1,400 miles in length, 1,400 miles uh, wide, and its walls are 1,400 miles high. Our, our very own Tony Kessinger in his commentary on Revelation says that you were to place this city on a map. It would stretch from New York City westward to Denver, Colorado. And it would stress, stretch from New York City all the way down to Miami. That would be the size of this city that John sees coming down out of heaven. It would be 1,400 miles high, many times higher than where our International Space Station is orbiting around the Earth. It is massive. It's immense and spacious enough for all the redeemed people of God. It says that the names of the 12 tribes are written on the 12 gates. And the names of the 12 apostles are written on the foundation stone. What, what does that mean? It means that this city is a place for all the people of God. 
for the Old Testament and the New Testament people of God, for the Jews and the Gentiles, for all of those who have been saved by faith in Jesus. This city is for all of them. These 12 beautiful gates are each made of one massive gleaming pearl, if you can imagine that. The walls of this city are over 200 feet thick and made of clear diamond. The walls are studded with the 12 stones mentioned in verse 19 and 20. Many of these same stones are listed in the Old Testament as being on the breastplate of the high priest that served in the temple of God. The idea is that there will be beautiful colors that will be embedded into the walls of this city that will radiate and reflect the light of the glory of God all over this city. We're told here that the streets are streets of gold, not yellow gold, not white gold, but clear heavenly gold. Where can you get that kind of gold? Only in heaven. Clear heavenly gold, again, that will reflect and radiate the glory and the beauty of God. It's really hard to take in this description that John was given a vision of. But this is the place that Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. Here's truth number six. In heaven, God's glory will shine on us and God's life will sustain us. Verses 22 and 23 talk about a few things that won't be in heaven. Verse 22 says there won't be a temple in heaven. Why? Because we don't need one. We have the temple there in flesh and blood. We have the Lord Jesus Christ there with us. And you don't need a shadow when you have the substance. It also says that there won't be a sun or a moon in heaven. Look at verse 23. The city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it. Why? For the glory of God illuminates it. The Lamb is its light. So we won't need incandescence. We won't need LEDs. We won't need LEDs because we have G-O-D. We have God. And His glory and His luminance, His brilliance will shine and reflect all over heaven. His glory will shine on us, but also His life will sustain us. Look at Revelation 22, verse 1. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne. Notice the source. From the throne of God and from the Lamb. This river won't be like the Indian River or the Banana River. There won't be algae. There won't be dead fish floating to the top every few years. Right? There won't be pollution. This is a clear river that is flowing from the throne of God. It's a picture of the life, the eternal life of God that will sustain the people of God for all eternity. And there's not just a river. There's also a tree. It says in verse 2, in the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. Where's the last time we saw a river and a tree in a garden? It should remind us of Genesis 1 and 2, the Garden of Eden that God has prepared for us here, and it takes it to a whole nother level. But the life of God will sustain us forever and ever. Six truths down, four to go. We'll cover these very quickly. Here's number seven. The saved from all nations will be with us in heaven. Verse 23 talks about how the Lamb of God is the light of the city. And then in verse 24, we read this, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and their honor into it. The the word for nations there is the word ethnos that we get our word ethnic groups from. It's the same word that Jesus gave us in Matthew 28 when he said, go and make disciples of all nations, of all 
the ethnos, all the people groups of the earth. And Revelation 7 says that there will be someone from every tribe and every tongue, uh, every people group on the face of the earth that will be gathered around the throne and around the Lamb. That This is important for us to remember that heaven is not going to be a white heaven. It's not going to be a black heaven. Heaven is not going to be an American heaven. It's not going to be a Chinese heaven. In heaven, there will be someone from every tongue and every tribe and every people group on the face of the earth. What does that mean for us, church? It means that right now on earth, we should be living like that's where we're going to be. That's why in the church, there should be no barriers that separate us. There shouldn't be race or politics or anything else that separates us in the body of Christ because one day, we're all saved by the same lamb. Amen, church? And all of those who know Christ are going to be gathered together as one. That's where we're heading. Here is the eighth truth about heaven. In heaven, we won't be bored. We'll find joy in serving God forever. Look at verse 3 of twenty-two, chapter 22. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him. The word serve there means to serve. It also means to worship. I know sometimes we kind of restrict the idea of worship to just singing a worship song. But even now, worship means much more than that. The Bible tells us to worship him in everything that we do, even when we eat or drink, right? To do it all to the glory of God. All of life is intended to be worshiped. And in heaven, all of life will be worshiped. In heaven, everything that we do will be done to worship God. Will we sing and worship to God? Absolutely we will. But it's not going to be a never-ending choir practice. Everything that we do in heaven will be done to serve and to worship God. And we'll talk next week about more of what those things might be, those possibilities of what it might look like for us in heaven to serve him and to worship him with all that we are. But I assure you, we will not be bored. We're going to discover there what God wants us to realize here, and that is that our greatest joy comes when we worship the God who made us. Truth number nine about heaven. For those who know Jesus, here's what we think. Heaven can't come soon enough. And we cry out, come, Lord Jesus. Three times in this last chapter of the Bible, Jesus tells us that he's coming quickly. Tells us that in verse seven. Tells us that in verse 12. He tells us again in verse 20. Surely I am coming quickly. And what's our response to that? Even so, come, Lord Jesus. It's a translation of the Aramaic word Maranatha, which means our Lord come. And this should be the cry of our hearts. Because once we get an idea of what heaven is going to be like, once we get an idea of what it will be like to be in the presence of our Savior and to see his face, we need to realize things aren't going to get worse. They're going to get much, much better. And there should be nothing in this life that should hold us back. Everything in our hearts, everything in our being should be saying, Lord, come quickly. I wish it were today that I could be with you. I know there's a prominent teacher on TV that's written a book called Your Best Life Now. But the Bible doesn't say that our best life is going to be now. Here's the truth. Our best life is not now. It's then when we're with God forever in a place called heaven. And so church, let's allow what God has taught us in his word about heaven to help us to fix our minds on then and to live here like we're a citizen there. For those who know Christ this morning, I want us to focus on that cry, that come 
That is the cry that comes from our hearts because we long for Jesus to come back. But if you're here today and you're not sure that you know Jesus in a personal way, I want you to focus on a different come. Here's the final truth about heaven I want to share with you. Heaven is open to every single one of us because the Spirit of God cries, come. Look with me at verse 17. And the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Friend, I don't claim to know everything about your life or everything that you've gone through up until this point, but I do know this. I know God loves you. I know that the same Spirit of God that inspired these words is speaking through His Word to you right now and that you are being invited to come. And it's an open invitation. I don't know if you, you notice that, but there's, there, there's nothing here that says that this is something that you can pay for or that you can earn. He says, I want to give this to you freely. In fact, if you look back at Revelation 21 and verse 7, or verse 6, it says, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. You know, the only requirement, the only requirement for you to come and to take of this water is that you be thirsty. That's it. You can't earn it. You can't pay for it. You can't be good enough for it. The only requirement, according to the Word of God, is that you be thirsty for it, that you come to a place, which hopefully you've already come to, where you realize that nothing in this world can satisfy the thirst that's inside of me. There are things that bring me joy for a little bit, but then they're gone. Nothing can satisfy that thirst. Children can't satisfy that. Marriage can't satisfy that. A job can't satisfy that. Money can't satisfy Nothing can satisfy the thirst that is in my heart because God created us for a relationship with him and nothing is going to satisfy your heart until you know him. And so the invitation is open to every single one of us. All you have to be is thirsty. I want to ask that you would stand right now as we sing together. And if that is you, if you are thirsty today to come and to drink of the water of life that Jesus offers to you, I want to just invite you to come. We're going to have our pastors will be here across the front at the head of each aisle. I plead with you today, do not leave this place today without having accepted his invitation to come. Don't wait for anybody else. You come right now as we sing together.